0: Welcome to Cyclopath, showcasing work by early career geoscientists that is of interest to the cyclostatic community. This podcast is made possible thanks to financial support of the International Subcommission on Timescale Calibration. <laughs> Hi there. Welcome to the sixth episode of Cyclopod. My name is David de and today our guest is Margriet Lantink. Margriet is working on her PhD at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Two years ago already, Margriet published a paper in Nature Geoscience that caused quite a stir, both in the cyclostratigraphic community and in popular media. A Dutch newspaper, for example, featured the summary of her work under the title An Old Climate Secret in the Striped Mountain. Those stripes they refer to the famous banded iron formations. And old? Well, that is very old. The banded iron formation Marguerite studied comes from South Africa, and they were formed in the earliest Proterozoic. For those of you who don't usually work that far back in time, that's almost two and a half billion years ago. So Marguerite, welcome to the show. You're laying the last hand to your PhD thesis now, so how is that going?
1: yeah well hi uh, david thanks uh, for inviting me my phd has been going great yeah taking a bit longer than expected or hoped so i keep telling myself i can finish it in two weeks yeah i really um i expect to finish before christmas holidays so, all right yeah looking Good. forward to that
0: Good luck with that, but at least the first chapter of your PhD is is done, and it will be based on the 2019 Nature Geoscience paper in which you advocate a climate control for banded iron formations. Before we start, can you describe how the Earth looked like two and a half billion years ago?
1: Yeah, I can. Yeah, so that's... Already a hard question, of course, because the farther we go back in time, uh, the less of the geological record has been uh, preserved. But um, yeah, so the idea is that it, this wasn't an, an, an anoxic uh, Earth. So about 2.4, two point two billion years ago, we see, start to see evidence that oxygen appears in the atmosphere for the first time, as well as in a shallow ocean, because of ultimately the evolution of uh, cyanobacteria, so oxygenic photosynthesis. But then uh, we are about 100 million years before that, where you see uh, in the, the stratigraphic rock record from that period, which is preserved in uh, places like um, South Africa and Western Australia, uh, you see this massive deposits of banded arm formations, which are uh, which extend laterally over hundreds of kilometers, and uh, these have been interpreted as Uh, evidence for a largely anoxic deep ocean, which was rich in iron, iron 2 plus, dissolved, because you need that to transport, uh, be able to transport iron over large distances. And so the idea is that these deposit, these banded iron formations, or in short, BIFs were deposited, yeah, in the first stable passive margin settings that started to develop around that time.
0: And so you you already talked about the lithologies you encountered in in South Africa in the Paleoproterozoic rocks of South Africa. Can you say something about the rhythm that is preserved in those banded iron formations? At what depth scales do they occur?
1: Yeah. So okay. Yeah. So we um, so we went to uh, South Africa where you had Kuruman banded iron formation, which is a deposit of about 200 meters thick. So first, the first few days we went to the core uh, library where, because people mostly look at drill course when they studied information, and there, because we had the question, is there any Melankovitch control on these deposits? And so, but and from course it wasn't really clear uh, because you see a lot of uh, variations. But to, uh, when we went to the field, there you see in like the Kouremon hills, very nice uh, meter scale variations in, in weathering profile, we call that, so relief. So you see these exposed layers of reddish brown, iron oxide rich BIF and then alternating with intervals that are like more weathered away so they're more vegetated and this occurred uh, on a scale of about five meters and then we also saw this larger scale variation which caused this hierarchical stacking pattern at a scale of about 15 to 20 meters.
0: And so so you, you nicely described the lithology but did you also use any proxies to mark or to identify that lithological rhythm you just described?
1: Yeah, so um, so as I said, we saw these alternations in the weathering profile. So we made basically first a log of these alternations we saw in the weathering profile. So with uh, Jacob's stuff, we measured, okay, uh, we have one meter of uh, very poorly exposed lithology and then f- 50 centimeters of intermediately exposed uh, BIF. Um, so we did that at five uh, sections, separated of 150 kilometers. And then, but in, in in certain sections, we also described the lithology. We took uh, samples, which we then took back to the Netherlands and analyzed with XRF. Based on this, we can say that, that this, these more indurated, well-exposed layers are basically more iron oxide, uh, silica-rich, and then the... the the more weathered intervals are more like carbonaceous and uh, shale-bearing intervals.
0: So that iron oxide versus carbonate-rich lithological rhythm, you link that to astronomical forcing, so insulation forcing. Can you explain why that climate control, that insulation control for banded iron formations is controversial and still is controversial?
1: Yeah, well, that's funny, actually, because um, when you look at the very old studies, uh, from the 1960s, 70s, had yeah, this scientist, uh, one called Alec Trendall from uh, Australia, who described these rocks and marked the clear regularity you see in these layers, and he actually wrote this 1973 paper where he was proposing that this could be controlled by uh, astronomical forcing. But somehow, yeah, this got forgotten in the in the common uh, yeah science scientific community. I don't know why, perhaps, because with the discovery of hydrothermal vents, so people started to see these deposits as chemical precipitates. Then they developed, started to develop this model that the, the most of the iron came from, like, submarine vent systems. People are arguing for a hydrothermal plume or uh, volcanic uh, origin for the rhythmic banding. Also, because they can tell us about the evolution of oxygen and redox evolution of the ocean, people have really tried to look at the mineralogy and the isotope chemistry to say something about the yeah this redox evolution of the Earth. And for this purpose, people really want to look at pristine drill cores because you don't want to have the weathered rocks. You don't have the pristine geochemical signal. And I guess also that's why people start forgot forget to look at the rhythmic layering that you really see actually in the field. So I wouldn't say whether it's controversial controversial that there's this astronomical control weather has just been sort of forgotten.
0: Yeah, good that you picked it up then. So I, I like to zoom in a little bit into the cyclostratigraphic results you obtained. You are talking about bundles that are about 20 meters thick, and then you identified ridges that have a thickness of about five meters. And you already mentioned the, the stacking pattern between those with a cycle ratio of one to three or one to four. And then you use uranium lead ages to claim that these five meter cycles are related to the 405,000 year long eccentricity cycle. And then the 20 meter thick bundles, they would be related to a 1.6 million year, very long eccentricity cycle. So how crucial was it to use uranium lead to redate some zircons from the Kuruman bif to come to this interpretation?
1: Yeah, it was essential. (laughs) Uh, the uranium lead. When we did the field work in uh, South Africa, we measure, we saw the, 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 the rhythmic alternations, so we logged them and analyzed them with the time series analysis at home, and we wrote a paper. All the time, we didn't have any idea about the sedimentation rate, or af- at least very little, because of um, available shrimp, multigrain zircon, itches, their precision and ac- accuracy was not good enough. So the position rate estimates for these rocks uh, were between three and three hundred meters per million years. So it's funny because the sedimentation rate was so uncertain we formulated two or more hypotheses about based on like the ratio of the two cycles, dominant cycles we saw. Uh, So basically wrote the entire manuscript already and then the uranium lead ages came and then it turned out that our second hypothesis, which was not necessarily the most preferred one, uh, because the alternative we had was, of course, the 100 and the 400,000 year, just cycle. So, but the uranium led, let the, they, they said, okay, yeah, this is really consistent with our second hypothesis.
0: That's a cool story on how such a paper comes into existence. Yeah. But besides those first order sedimentation rate estimates from radiometric ages, you also have a handful of additional arguments to back up your astronomical interpretation. You're right about the lateral continuity of the cycles, their stacking pattern, of course, but also the systematic shift in both lithological rhythms, absection due to a change in sedimentation rate and about their amplitude modulations. In your opinion, is there one of all those arguments that sticks out?
1: Yeah. So then I would just say, at a combination again of the uranium lead constraint deposition rate, that really was really consistent with these five meter cycles converting to approximately 400,000 years. Because we know that cycle, well, via precession has a really strong influence on the uh, insulation, and that is the the this, this cycle that we know of, which is related to the uh, uh, orbits of Jupiter and Venus, which is which the period is uh, very stable. So, yeah, that is for me really the strongest argument, I would say. And then also when we know that, we we zoom in at the, the, the centimeter to decimeter scale. Uh, like tremble, I mentioned previously, already described the sort of calamina cycle of them. And this is then the scale of this is sort of consistent with climatic precession.
0: So if I understand you correctly, then you're ascribing the centimeter scale rhythms to precession.
1: Yeah, so um, so I mean, the, the classical meso-banding that banded iron formations are known for a um, uh, regular repetition of certain meso-bands of a thickness of about 15 or 10 centimeters that uh, seems to be consistent with a uh, climatic precession origin. But then in certain intervals of these Kurman BIF and, and also in Australia, you have a clear procession scale imprint, but in other intervals it's not very well visible, so that is yeah, something <laughs> something we don't understand. Yeah,
0: something enigmatic <laughs> Now we come to the section of the podcast where uh, we take a step back and where we pick out a special number and look at our signs from a bit of a distance. This month's number is 1788. That's the year in which James Newton found the Seeker Point Unconformity in Scotland. And one of his friends with whom he visited the outcrop would have said, the mind seemed to grow giddy by looking so far in the abyss of time. It's quite a heavy quote, but Marguerite, you are really doing psychostaticography in the abyss of time, right? looking at rocks that are about 2.5 billion years old. Do you sometimes become philosophical when you think about how our planet could have looked like back then?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, philosophical, I don't know. It's really nice to work on such old rocks and to use your knowledge from the present day and the more recent geological past with your imagination—that's really the nice, nice thing about our our work. Also, when you look at these rocks, it's somehow they look really familiar, like, like present day or yeah, like very recent rocks. And then, but they also very odd. In so that is really the, yeah, uh, I, I like that. And so I would say definitely more supporter of uniformitarianism, but actually more of Milankovitch theory. Right. So. Uh, the Earth is a dynamic system, so, and this is something we have to keep in mind, I would think, when we work on uh, the early Earth.
0: Thanks, Marguerite, for this little in-between science-philosophy section. Let's go back to the science now. So, if you look at the paleogeography of the Paleoproterozoic, you have Australia and South Africa close together. And in this and in your paper, you hint towards the possibility of making cyclostratigraphic correlations not between sections 250 kilometers away, but also between Australia and South Africa, so multiple thousands of kilometers away. What do you infer from that in terms of paleoclimate?
1: Yeah. So first of all, the question is uh, how far were they apart when the the, the bedded were deposited? So, like stratigraphic studies and also paleomagnetic met- paleo- reconstructions have been trying to argue that there are quite maybe these Bennett I formations were simultaneously deposited in the this Transvaal Basin in South Africa and in the Hamersley Basin in Western Australia, in either, either partly enclosed basin or at least along the same passive margin of a larger uh, supercraton 2.4 uh, billion years ago. You had the first supercontinent, superior forming also, combined with other cratons uh, located uh, from, uh, for example, Canada. And this combined with the strong eccentricity, thus pre- uh, precession uh, control uh, we see in these deposits, located at uh, around the equator or at least low latitude. Yeah, the, the first the the first thing you start to think about is of course a monsoonal control, control because we know also that at mid to latitudes that's a really a system that is strongly responding to astronomical
0: forcing. So if you are saying monsoons, I start thinking about nutrient fluxes from the continent to the ocean. Could that have played a role in explaining the alternation between iron rich and iron poor layers?
1: Um. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. So. Uh, at the long period eccentricity scale, we see these alternations not only between iron oxide rich and iron oxide poor intervals, but the iron oxide poor intervals are also more shavy. that could indicate that you had these alternations of like yeah, continental influx which triggered periodically uh, productivity. But then the question becomes, yeah, does that result in uh, more deposition of iron oxides? because it could on one hand trigger the photo um, photofertroth bacteria that were living there in the case of a, an iron rich water column uh, which then oxidizes the iron and this precipitates down on the other hand uh, you could argue that the increased productivity would induce more uh, organic matter deposition at the seafloor which is then converted to carbonates uh, because of uh, the simulatory iron reduction, we call that. So this is a diagenetic process where you reduce the iron oxides together with organic matter, you form iron carbonates. Um, but yeah, so this is like uh, these mechanisms you have to really, to solve this, you really need to look at the precession scale uh, because this is the direct climate influence. And uh, we also do not know anything about yet about the phase relations between the sonomical forcing, the monsoonal influence, uh, and the, 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 the logical changes.
0: What would be a possible strategy to resolve those phase relationships? Imagine that you have unlimited funding. What would you do to, to unravel this this chain of phase relationships?
1: Yeah, so first of all, just investigate more, more rocks and specifically look for intervals where this procession signal is particularly clear uh, from different intervals, for example... Uh, the uh, iron oxide which intervals at the eccentricity scale. And then yeah, on the other hand, I, I would collaborate with modelers, uh, both biogeochemical modelers. Maybe you can look at how uh the, 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 the bio- biogeochemistry response would respond to uh, to like increased nutrient influx, diagenetic processes, and also perhaps climate modelers. I don't know whether this is realistic for such a long time ago where we have very little constraints about the paleogeography, but mm-hmm. to do some sensitivity testing of what like a monsoonal response would be uh, given a certain uh, land-sea ratio.
0: Thank you, Margret. Well, realistic or not, it's a very cool dream or a very cool vision to end this podcast on. At this point, I would also like to thank our audience for listening to the sixth episode of Cyclopod. I really enjoyed talking to Marguerite about her nature geoscience paper and about the oldest cyclocytography that has been covered by Cyclopod until now. And honestly, I think the record that Marguerite just set will stand for quite a while. What I really liked about Marguerite's cyclocytographic work is that she made a very good case for a climate control on banded iron formations, just with a handful of basic observations, good uranium lead ages, and detailed logging. So, Magritte's paper might be quite provocative or controversial, and I'm pretty sure that not everyone who has read the paper will like Margrit's conclusions, but at least the paper adheres to the entire set of guidelines for a good cyclostatic graphic study as we describe them in the framework of the cyclostatic Graphy intercomparison project. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.